is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Good day there. My name is Dan Fitzgerald and thanks for joining me for the Country Hour. Well, the WA government has announced it will spend $77 million to upgrade an irrigation channel in the Ord Valley. It expands the M1 channel, so obviously if we're going to be adding 5,000 hectares of developable land, you will need to have a bigger channel. Yeah, this is big news for the region and it will bring water closer to the NT border. Just how close will it get? I'll tell you more soon. And also today, boxes and boxes of colourful red and yellow dragon fruit are being picked in the Darwin rural area. Today we're going to head out to a farm and see how harvest is shaping up. It all depends uh, on the quality more than anything else. You're always going to get pretty much the same amount of fruit, the same tonnage, but if it's commercially good or not, uh, depending on wind damage, pest damage, all that, that's going to be something that we'll probably have to talk about earlier in, uh, in the next year when we know for sure. Yeah, all those stories and plenty more to come on the program today. And remember, if you ever want to join the conversation here on the Country Hour, you can always send us a text on 0487 99 First up today, the Federal Parliament is set to pass a new law to cap gas and coal prices in a bid to rein in power bills over on the East Coast today. This bill, it has already passed the lower house in Parliament in Canberra and it will go through to the Senate later today. So this bill, it will see gas prices capped at $12 per petajoule and coal prices capped at $125 per tonne for the next 12 months and from then on allow for some sort of price controls thereafter. Now, this is an extraordinary intervention into the energy market. So the question we're asking today is, what does all this mean for development in the Beedaloo Basin, where gas producers are expected to apply for production licences next year, only a few months away? That is a question I put to Tony Wood, the director of the Grattan Institute's energy program? Well, initially, none. The idea is that this $12 a gigajoule cap will apply to new contracts that are written primarily from gas that's applied to the East Coast domestic market from the very big LNG producers in Queensland. It's a very small percentage of their total production, but it's also very important because it does flow through to electricity prices and gas prices across the whole East Coast, and that's why it was important, I think, for the government to take action when the high prices went very, very high. Now, in the short term, it won't have any impact on any other projects, uh, including Beetaloo. In the longer term, it's a, li- a bit less clear, but that's where it sits at the moment. There are a couple of gas companies uh, that flag that they're looking to apply for production licences in the Beetaloo from next year uh, with potentially sending gas to the East Coast. Uh, would they be considering their investment at the moment at all? Look, I think the nature of what's been announced so far um, is such that it has given uh, at least some concern to people looking to develop new gas fields, whether they be in Victoria or in the Northern Territory or even Western Australia, maybe. But um, I think the issue is, well, what's been announced so far doesn't do do anything, but the way 
the legislation and the possibility of this um, mandatory code of conduct have been worded, it could extend into other areas. And the consultation paper the government's put out last week, at least theoretically, could allow that to happen. Now, if I was developing a new new stuff like the Beetaloo, I'd at least be wanting to um, get a much better idea of, is this something I could be exposed to? Remembering that you know, the $12 price cap is intended to be only short term. And um, in fact, you know, most people would have expected that $12 for most of um, recent history would be a very good price. So I don't think they should be concerned that the price is going to is going to be less than $12. But there's so a lot of uncertainty. And that's what I think would give reason to pause. Uh, an analysis by Reputex last year it estimated that production costs in the Beetaloo could be around 7 to $10 per petajoule. Would a $12 cap make the Beetaloo viable? It depends on where you apply the, the $12 cap, I think, um, because um, the Beetaloo is a long way from the East Coast, if that's where the government's concern is. There have been proposals to send the Beetaloo gas to Darwin and for export, there have been proposals to send somewhere all of it to the East Coast. I think the, the people who have now taken out origin share of that production have got a strong commitment to the domestic gas market. But we'll see. So, I mean, when you think about you know, at $7, um, you can probably get it to the East Coast if you if you really want to for less than $12. Uh, at $10, it gets a bit tight. Now, obviously, there's a lot of speculation there about what the real cost will be. So they have to make their commercial decisions. The other big issue, of course, on their thing, which will influence their thinking, is that building infrastructure such as a gas pipeline to get the gas to the East Coast is very expensive. And at some time in the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to end up stopping burning gas because we have to meet our net zero by 2050 greenhouse climate change objectives. So there's some very complex and related issues here. And you know, ultimately, trying to make a commercial decision on how you go ahead with the Beetaloo needs to think about not just what costs look like today and what revenues and prices look like today, but are there risks emerging that they need to be concerned about? And that's a commercial decision. But I think the, the recent intervention by the government has at least given them some reason to think a bit harder about the competitiveness of Beetaloo gas on the East Coast. Could this intervention just push Beetaloo gas producers into just deciding to export all their gas and, and, and not worry about sending it to the East Coast? I'll let the decision to them. I, I, it's hard to tell. There'll be all sorts of reasons why they would send gas A or to A or B, whether or not they would have already been thinking about exporting and whether there'd be a good argument to send some of it to the East Coast depends upon the commercial viability. I mean... Having a good, secure domestic customers can be very valuable, but equally um, getting access to better prices is valuable. So I don't, I'm not sure by itself that this announcement as as it, as part of the legislation that goes through the parliament today will actually have an, any real impact on that. It's the uncertainty that means that they might want to at least make sure they understand more about this. And this is what, what we're talking about now is something that other gas producers are also giving consideration to. And I think I've even seen the Federal Minister, Madeleine King, Minister for Resources, saying, well, look, it's understandable that the, that the companies would at least need to think about um, how they're going to respond to this legislation. Tony Wood, he's the director of the Grattan Institute's Energy Program, speaking there about the federal government's energy package. It has now passed the lower house after all of the parliamentarians got recalled to Canberra. As we go to air this afternoon, it is being debated in the Senate right now. It is expected to pass through that house with the support of the Greens. You can stay up to date with all that debate via the ABC News website. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. 
I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station and you're listening to The Country Hour. Now, just sticking with gas, if you missed yesterday's Country Hour, you would have missed the news that gas has begun flowing from the Northern Territory to Mount Isa and onto the East Coast for the first time since early September. The Northern Gas Pipeline, it had been closed because of supply issues in the Black Tip gas field out to the southeast of southwest of Darwin. Uh, but this week, the pipeline, it has restarted. ANI, the owner of the Black Tip gas field, it has been doing some work on its gas wells and it seems to have fixed some supply issues there. Uh, Central Petroleum, it produces gas. Uh, near Alice Springs, and its CEO and Managing Director, Leon Devaney, explained the situation. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great result. The NGP is back up and running. I think there are really two key contributions. One was um, they've done some work uh, at the Black Tip field to get production up a little bit. Um, and in addition to that, our Palm Valley 12 well um, was put online uh, earlier this month, bringing about 10 TJs a day uh, of production ad uh, to the NT. Uh, So the combination of those has meant that um, uh, just this week um, the NGPs had enough volume to restart operations. And uh, I understand today Central is um, selling about, I think, about 10 TJs through to the East Coast market. So it's a a great result. And um, the outage at the NGP um, was really minimized by some uh, great work from uh, Gemini, you know, Black Tip, Northern Territory Government, and APA, uh, as well as our team, uh, to make sure production was there and, and flows could start uh, start again as soon as possible. Leon Devaney, he is the CEO and Managing Director of Central Petroleum. He was speaking there yesterday. So because the Northern Gas Pipeline is back open again, his company is now able to send and sell gas through that to the East Coast. And as a result, today the company has announced the signing of a new supply agreement to send gas through that northern gas pipeline to South 32's Cannington Mine near Mount Isa. Uh, The company told the ASX that it signed a two-year agreement at a fixed price, which the company said reflected strong market conditions. In a statement, Leon Devaney, he said, We are working hard with our joint venture partners to bring more gas to market playing our part in helping meet the transitional energy challenge. And we look forward to commencing supply to South 32. That is an announcement made by Central Petroleum to the Stock Exchange earlier today. Summertime is the time to stream happiness. You need a laugh. With comedy galore on ABC iView. Really? Let me show you. Brand new laughs like Will Logical and Summer Love. And then I got a little funny. And returning favourites like Frayed, Aftertaste and Fisk and so much more. I'm loving them. <laughs> Stream comedy happiness for free. Last one. All summer long on ABC iView. Uh, coming up soon here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Down and the Northern Territory, we're just going to head across the border to the Ord Valley where the Western Australian Government has announced it will spend $77 million to bring water from Lake Argyle even closer out to the Territory border via some upgrades to a major irrigation channel. I'm going to tell you more after the Travelling Wilburys.
Travelling Wilbur is there with the end of the line. It is 15 minutes to one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Well, the West Australian Government will spend $77 million to extend a major irrigation channel in the Ord Valley. The M1 channel will be widened to support the development of the Knox Plain farmland area, which is just on the western side of the WANT border. Kimberley Agricultural Investment, or CHI, it's in the final stages of signing a lease with the WA government to be the developer of Knox Plain, and it's got some big plans to grow cotton there. Outgrowing WA Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan, she spoke to Steph Sinclair about the channel upgrade. It expands the M1 channel, so obviously if we're going to be adding 5,000 hectares of developable land, you will need to have a bigger channel. So fundamentally, this is about a bigger channel and it's fulfilling an obligation. But it is an obligation that we actually, as I said, if you if you step back and take a helicopter view about where we're going in the planet, the need for us to move away uh, from synthetic hydrocarbon-based fibres to natural fibres, I think that Kimberley is a very good place to grow and we just have to be disciplined and ensure that if in if in a season that there isn't rain and you know the the climate forecasts are not suggesting that that is going to increase in frequency in the ord but we have to be disciplined and and not grow it but we are going to need natural fibers people are going to need to be clothed and we believe that the Kimberley is very well placed and particularly if we can get uh, cotton processing um, powered by renewable energy close to the source where the fibre is grown, that that is the most sustainable option. This channel is set to service the Knox Plain development. Where is that uh, the lease for that development at with Kai? Well, I'm uh, I'm told uh, it is nearing completion. That negotiations are in their final uh, final stages. Okay, and do you have a time on it when you think that might be finalised? Well, certainly in the next six weeks, we would uh, like to see that um, finalised. So, will that seventy-seven million dollars be dependent on the lease being finalised with Kai? Yes, because you wouldn't be obviously needing to expand the channel if the lease was not, if they weren't proceeding to develop that land. So if they if they don't sign the development lease, then clearly they're not going to develop the land and clearly they won't need the expanded um, channel. What's the, uh, the timeline? When can we expect some of that work to start on the, the channel upgrade? There has been a fair amount of uh, of design work uh, that has been done, so I would uh, I would anticipate that this would go out once the Knox lease has been signed. That this would go out for tender. So um, we would be presuming sometime next year, because as I say, quite a lot of work has already been done on the design of the expansion. And uh, that will then go to Watercore to implement and they will go to tender and get a, a contractor to deliver it. That is the outgoing Agriculture Minister for Western Australia, Alana McTiernan, speaking there about a funding for an upgrade to a major irrigation channel in the Ord Valley 
that will see up to 570 megalitres of water per day flow through the channel by 2027. And it will bring water from Lake Argyle ever closer to the NT border. There have been plans or at least dreams over the years to take Lake Argyle water over into the NT. Uh, Nothing concrete as of this stage, but this announcement will bring that irrigation water even closer. Environmental group Environs Kimberley, it's criticised the use of taxpayer money on this upgrade with its director Martin Pritchard calling on the WA government to be transparent with a cost-benefit analysis as well as a climate change risk analysis. Uh, He said in a statement, there's no guarantee that cotton will be a successful crop given the extreme temperature increase predicted through CSIRO and Bureau of Meteorology modelling for Kununurra. But local farmers, uh, they have welcomed the announcement. David Menzel, he's the president of the Shire of the Wyndham East Kimberley, and he's also a farmer in the Ord Valley. He says it's good news for the region's ag sector. Great to have that announcement out there. We've been working towards trying to finalise a design for, for the upgrade to the M1 as we have a developer out there working on the Knox Plain and this is an obligation of the government to be able to get water there, so it's great to finally have that announcement made. At the moment, the original channel that's been there for you know 60-something years extends out of town to point the Stockroot Road or near the Sandalwood Cafe and then as part of the Goomig land release about 10 years ago, a new channel was constructed from that point on out to service the new farmlands. Uh, it doesn't go to the border, but it services the West Australian lands. So the original bit was never up to size and it was either a duplication or an expansion of that first section of the channel that was required to deliver you know, the amount of water that will be needed out the system for the new lands. So will this take that water all the way to the border? Uh, It won't quite get to the border, but it will allow, it'll take that choke point out at the start of the channel and allow us to increase the volumes of water delivered down to the M2 channel, which goes out towards the border. But at the moment, there's no proponent or any need for water at the border or over the border. So that's a future works if, if and when a developer comes on board and well, we have a proponent or the Territory has a proponent out there, but they're not in a position yet to make any commitments. So how important is this upgrade and what will it mean for for the region and for the, the burgeoning cotton industry? Yeah, look, it's absolutely critical for the cotton industry. What we're finding, and there will be a bit of a concentration of planting windows. The cotton industry has a very defined planting window to manage that um, GM technology. So we're going to find a lot of crops planted in a very tight window. Uh, That will mean there's a a very high water demand in a very tight window once the wet season ends. And one of the concerns we've had is being able to deliver enough water to keep those crops growing from the wet season and into the start of the dry season. So this should give us the um, security that we'll be able to deliver the water that farmers require. Uh, environmental group Environs put out a release saying that too much money has been put into the ord and it hasn't delivered, uh, that this is not good for the environment, this is not good for climate. What's your response to that? Yeah, look, I guess that's to be expected. I'm, I'm not sure whether the numbers are particularly um, reflective. We've got a whole town and a whole system in place because of the dam. 
So my argument would be that the, the economic benefit and the social benefit of having some economic activity in the East Kimberley far outweighs the capital that government... I mean, it's not a small amount. It's a significant amount of capital, but all that does is enables the private sector to invest a lot more money. So, yeah, I think it's an absolutely critical part of generating economic development and, and better social outcomes in our community. As part of this announcement, I guess what I'll be looking at as a Shire president and and also as a farmer is that we can generate some long-term benefits for our local community. That's a large sum of money, but I like the uh, fact that it's spread over several years of construction and I would certainly be hoping that there's some local enterprises and businesses can get involved in that project and deliver, you know, deliver an even better dividend to our community. David Menzel, he's a Kununurra farmer and he's also president of the Shire of the Wyndham East Kimberley and he was speaking there to Steph Sinclair. I'm Cameron Berryman from Wild Barra Fisheries. We've got vessels fishing all over the northern waters bringing in wild-caught barramundi. You're listening to The Country Hour. Five minutes to one here on The Country Hour. Let's talk goats now because goat meat prices have absolutely crashed. They are down by about... 60% at the moment. What is behind it all? Cara Jeffrey has been taking a look. Goat meat prices in Australia peaked at 920 cents a kilogram in June, but since then the price paid directly to goat producers has fallen to just 361 cents a kilo. It has forced goat musterer John Slacksmith to shut down his operations near Lightning Ridge in far west New South Wales. We've sort of currently stopped for a few weeks buying goats because yeah we don't know what the market's going to do and we don't want to go out and try and pay as much as we can for a goat to, just to get the goat and then yeah the next week the price goes down again and then, then we lose money so at the moment we've just slowed down everything for a few months. Meat and Livestock Australia's latest report shows that 1.56 million goats were processed in Australia during 2021-22 period, an increase of 46% on the year prior. That figure is expected to go up again in the next year. MLA analyst Ripley Atkinson explains more about the market. Even though the market has softened in a reaction to such a significant increase in supply, is also there's there's more goats available uh, for the producer to then to then offload. So it's definitely an excellent time to be uh, to be investing and in, and in producing goat meat. And clearly the seasonal conditions as well have been supportive of of increased um, marking rates of kids and and those sorts of things. Mr Atkinson said goats were also getting heavier as producers were now better at managing their animals, especially in western New South Wales and Queensland. Typically, the the average carcass weight for the last sort of five years or so has been around 15 kilos. Carcass weights we know in the third quarter for goats actually increased to 17.5 kilos. So increased supply, increased carcass weights will provide an increase in production and, um, and, and the seasonal conditions are obviously supporting better operational procedures for producers to, to produce more product with more weight. Goat musterer John Slacksmith says he's not surprised by the falling prices being paid by processors. If they're overrun with goats, they, the smart thing to do is to drop the price and slow the goat numbers coming in. He is curious, though, about the problem in one of the industry's key markets in the United States. One of the ports over in America, because there's a lot of goats in Australia, pretty much America's one of our biggest importers, So, and they stopped for a few days. 
and that'll stuff up the whole market back here if um, yeah, if we can't get our goats gone, wrecks the whole process. Almost all of Australia's goat meat is exported and the US takes almost two-thirds of that. So a fall in demand there is a big problem for Australia's industry. Auctions Plus senior analyst Emma Fessy says drought in the US is causing the fall in goat meat consumption. So the US drought basically... The past six to 12 months, we've seen some record um, cow slaughter rates come through in the US. So um, the August numbers across the US have seen their cow slaughter sit 20% higher than in 2021, which essentially that means that they've got a lot of cold meat um cold red meat in storage and it's um the kind of draw like the drawback of that is they've got uh, they're lowering their prices on a retail level which is then pushing back the demand for goat meat because it is that niche protein um and it's kind of the first one that will take a bit of a knock when the prices of beef and lamb take a hit on the retail level Despite the troubles in the US market, exports are up significantly this year. According to MLA, more than 20,000 tonnes was exported and the dollar value increased by a whopping 81% to $300 million. MLA's Ripley Atkinson explains more. It's a really exciting space um, to be watching and, and to be engaging with at the minute the goat meat export market for Australia. And because we've had such a, a really strong improvement in production, we're seeing uh, year-to-date exports to October up by 28% um, across all the countries we export to, which is around 20. And the United States has, has, a, has had a really solid year. Um, its year-on-year exports increase are up 15%. South Korea's exports are up 95%. Um, Canada is up 25%. Taiwan up 9%. So it also, the export space also indicates how diverse the range of goat meat products we deliver into, into a number of different countries. So it's been a really exciting space to watch. And the United States, which takes around 60 to 65% of our product, is really the leader in, in that, that space as well. So it's been fantastic to see the demand globally for this product and it really validates producers that are investing in genetics and and infrastructure to to produce goats uh, on their properties. Ripley Atkinson, he's a senior market analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia, ending that report there from Cara Jeffrey. It is about time to head to the one o'clock news. I'll speak to you in five minutes and we'll get the latest from the Weather Bureau. But yeah, more Country Hour, five minutes time. Hello, my name is Beatrice and I'm from Wadea. Hello, my name is Stephanie Berda and I'm from Wadea. Hello, my name is Eugenie Gilbert. I'm from Wadea. And, and you're listening to Country Hour. Yeah, and Country Hour today brought to you by me, Dan Fitzgerald. You're on ABC Radio right across the Territory. We're also available on the podcast. I wonder if you started to see dragon fruit appear in markets or your local shop. The season is underway in the Darwin rural area and up soon we're going to be heading out into the paddock to see how the harvest is shaping up. It all depends uh, on the quality more than anything else. You're always going to get pretty much the same amount of fruit, the same tonnage, but if it's commercially good or not, uh, depending on wind damage, pest damage, all that, that's going to be something that we'll probably have to talk about earlier in, uh, in the next year when we're not sure. Yeah, this farm that we're going to be heading to, they not only pick red dragon fruit, 
but also yellow. And they've been working on a new plant trying to develop a purple dragon fruit. Sounds pretty interesting. I'll tell you more soon. But first, uh, let's catch up with the Weather Bureau to find out what is happening outside. We've got Rebecca Patrick on deck today. G'day, Rebecca. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thank you, Dan. That's the way. Um, rainfall figures overnight. Uh, is there much, much fall over the top end? Yeah, we had a, a good fall at Central Plateau um, up on uh, the Arna Plateau there, 71 millimetres. So um, we are starting to see some higher rainfall totals. Um, Warrawee scored 37 millimetres on Pelly 29. Um, Catherine Region got a little bit as well, 17 Mile Creek with 27 millimetres. Um, and around the Darwin area, not so much in town, but Middlepoint um, came in with 18 millimetres. Yeah, okay. Um, a little bit around then. Um, can we expect much more over the next few days? Yeah, we've started to see a few storms popping up already um, this afternoon, uh, particularly along the north coast, and we've just had a quite a heavy shower at our office at Kajarina um, just now. And Gove is also getting some, um, I'm sure, very welcome rainfall. I haven't seen a whole lot of rain over there in the east, but I've just picked up 20 millimetres since 9am this morning. So um, I'm sure they're enjoying that 10 degree temperature drop that occurred with that storm as well. Oh, wow, that does sound nice. And uh, looking at the radar, it looks like the Cox Peninsula is uh, copping a battering, uh, raining, pouring down at Bell Ewan and probably at... Uh, uh, Wagai Beach as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's a storm over that way as well. Um, so, yeah, starting to fire up uh, already this afternoon. Um, and I think that will be uh, the next few days. So it's fairly similar. We're starting to see, um, particularly across the weekend, across the top end, should see those storms spreading a bit further east um, and uh, they will be slow, more slow-moving storms than we saw um, earlier in the week. So uh, that means they will likely drop a bit more rainfall. Um, so, yeah, expect some, some higher rainfall totals over the coming days. Um, also further south from the top end, um, we're starting to see the showers and storms extending down the western half of the Territory um, over the next couple of days and then spread east over the weekend as well. So, um, yeah, should be a few more showers and storms around. Just how far south are you talking? Um, so we're already seeing some storms developing in the Lassiter district. So, um, yeah, right to the to the SA border. Um, there's a trough developing over Western Australia. So that's um, particularly those Western border areas expecting to see... Um, a fair bit of thunderstorm activity. Um, uh, there is the potential for some severe storms as well through those western areas over the next couple of days. Um, at this stage, probably more over Western Australian side, but um, yeah, that could be coming across um, in the coming days as well. Yeah, okay. And now, how are temperatures looking in Central Australia for the next few days with those potential storms around? Yeah, so those temperatures are... are 
definitely a lot better than those 40 degree days that they saw over the weekend. Um, so expecting um, our springs to get to a top of about 31 today. So um, yeah, quite nice uh, temperatures. Um, and Lassiter District, well, today Yulara is expecting a top of 32, but um, probably will be decreasing a little bit into the sort of mid to high 20s over the next few days, um, just with that extra rainfall around. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I can see uh, Yulara top of 26 predicted for Saturday. That's beautiful temperatures. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Especially for December. Um, yeah. Anything else we need to be aware of today, Rebecca? Um. No, I think just, um, yeah, be aware of uh, that heavier rainfall potential and, and potential for severe storms over the next few days if you're further south. Yeah, we'll do. All righty, um, thanks for the update. No worries. Thanks, Dan. So that is Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. It is 11 minutes past one. Hi, Joe Laverty here. On behalf of all of us at ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory, thank you for your wonderful support for the 2022 ABC Gives Appeal. Your donations raised enough money for 45,000 meals, money which will help Food Bank bring affordable food to people right across the Northern Territory. If you didn't get a chance to donate, it's not too late. You can head to abc.net.au slash ntgives until the end of the year. Thanks again for making a difference and helping others doing it tough. You're tuned in to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Now let's head out into the paddock where dragon fruit harvest has kicked off in the Darwin rural area. And Michelle Stanley, she went out to Marakai and spoke with dragon fruit grower Remy DeVos about how the season is looking. So far, so good. Um... The weather has been good to us. We've had a lot of sunlight. We've had a lot of rain early in the season, which helped a lot. Since the mango season finished as well, we had a lot of time to clean the rest of the farm up, so it sort of kept the pest down. And so hopefully all three of those combinations together will um, promise to give us a, a good crop for this season. Compared to previous years, how are things looking good in terms of your, your yields? From what we can see so far, it's looking a little bit above average, but it is still early in the season and anything can happen, especially up here in the north, cyclone-wise and all that sort of thing, so you can never guarantee if it is going to be better or not, but all the early signs are uh, promising for an above-average yield, yeah. What would be an average season for you? An average season is when I don't get any days off for the next three months. (laughs) Uh, and that's the way it's looking at the moment. Yeah, tonnage-wise, again, it all depends uh, on the quality more than anything else. You're always going to get pretty much the same amount of fruit, the same tonnage, but if it's commercially good or not, uh, depending on wind damage, pest damage, all that, that's going to be something that we'll probably have to talk about earlier in, uh, in the next year when we know for sure. What about the prices? How are you feeling going into, you know, the kind of bulk of your harvest? Are prices looking good for you? At the moment, they're not looking too bad for us. Uh, during the off-season or earlier in the year, there is a lot of imports coming in from uh, Vietnam, and, and that sort of keeps the prices down. But now that their season over in Southeast Asia is finishing, and we shouldn't be getting too much of their product hitting our shelves, our prices for the locally produced dragon fruit, not just ours, but all of Australia's, yeah, they should be um, sh- they should be climbing up again and looking good for us. 
We're standing next to a pretty tall dragon fruit tree, actually. It's um, it's taller than most. Uh, can you describe for people at home who might never have seen a dragon fruit plant before, what are you looking at? Uh, the tree we're looking at the moment is about six metres tall. It's probably got a circumference of around six metres as well. They don't always grow that big, uh, but this particular tree uh, was sort of grown next to a a palm tree as such and it just used that palm tree as a base to climb up against and it just kept reaching and reaching and entangling itself up until it uh, reached the very top of the palm tree and it can't go any higher so this is pretty much uh, as tall as it's going to get but it's uh, it's a prickly cactus type you wouldn't want to fall into it i'll tell you that much (laughs) it almost looks like medusa with the hair of snakes except the hair is of these sort of cactus branches you know washing over the sides you mentioned that this is a particularly tall tree how tall would be average for a dragon fruit Uh, again depending on the years of course and how how tall the bases are of a tree like the other trees around here that you can see are just over 15 years old and they're probably around the three meter mark uh, but then again, the posts that they're growing up against, they're 2.4 metres above the ground, and that entitles the tree to climb up a lot higher as well. Some people, or some of our other sections, we've only got 1.8 metre high posts as a base, and so therefore you might have seen on a little drive around that those trees don't uh, seem to get to the same height as uh, the ones we're standing next to right now. When you do have a tree this tall, is it better for production and quality of fruit? Uh, it could very well be, but it's a lot harder to, to harvest, so I it doesn't really matter if it's two tons of fruit at the top or not, it's uh, pretty hard to get down. So basically, yeah, obviously the bigger the tree, the more fruit, but you can't always get to them either. So the ones next to it, the sort of three metre high ones, they're a lot more um, economical for us. So you're not going to start planting all your dragon fruits over palms to get them as this tall no definitely not especially if uh, the wind does come and knocks one of these over it blocks the whole um the laneway as such and you can't get rid of it you can't get past it at least with the other trees if one of them falls over you can still drive a car through or whatever and but if one of these little bad boys falls over it's uh they'll either knock another one down or, or block your whole your whole farm off yeah you wouldn't want to be under it that's for sure no definitely not now we've just had a look around the farm and, and we are standing next to some of the older trees. Um, there's a section that we drove through that's about five years old where jackfruit used to be planted and another section just to the right of us here that have a different colour dragon fruit and, and this isn't your first year with the yellow dragon fruit but how are they going? Yeah so there's yellow dragon fruit have been there for a couple of years now. Um, not really commercially viable until last season. That was pretty much a first commercial crop before then we just had a couple of fruit here and there that we sent them to the the various southern markets just to see what the interest was going to be like in um, the particularly yellow colored fruit last year they went very well um i think initially it was also a bit of a the gimmicky factor to them that people wanted to buy them so this year is really going to be the test we're going to get a a bigger yield from them being the second year around and people also know the fruit now uh, so it won't be as much of a uh, a new thing. So we just have to wait and see. But um, all the signs, again, yeah, they're promising that uh, they will do well. Do they have a different price point to the regular pink dragon fruit that people might be more common, you know, might, might be more used to seeing? 
at the moment we are getting a better price for them but i don't know if that's because of the taste or just because it's uh, supply and demand as well we're the only sort of uh, commercial grower of the golden or yellow type whatever you want to call them and so if there's only so much fruit on the market then obviously the price goes up as well because there's only a limited supply of them uh, but hopefully people will enjoy them because the taste is a little bit different it's got a bit of a citrusy taste to them and hopefully people will um, enjoy that particular flavor and uh, they will keep buying them and the price will stay high what about the purple dragon fruit i've heard rumors about purple dragon fruit here but i haven't seen a huge amount being planted how are they going uh well we've planted a couple uh we've got a couple of flowers of them but the fruit itself hasn't really been the greatest of success so far uh we're still working on them and um we do feel that they will have potential uh, but yeah, at the moment it's a, a bit of a waiting game. They're only young trees as well. They're only like, some of them are only 18 months old, so we can't expect too much from them yet. Um, maybe by this time next year, I might have a better answer for you and yeah, tell you more about them. If you haven't had a dragon fruit before, how would you describe what they taste like? Uh, well, first of all, I would say you'd have to eat them cold. I wouldn't eat them straight to the tree. Uh, once they eat them cold, especially the white ones or even the, the yellow citrusy flavoured ones. But they're sort of a cross between a kiwi fruit and a watermelon, I would summarise that as. How do you like to eat your dragon fruit? Uh, I have it every single morning in my fruit salad along with the mango from our um, other side of the plantation and some other little fruits and veggies that we grow here like the pawpaws and all that. So yeah, I just make a fruit salad once a week and that includes dragon fruit. Breakfast at here by the sounds. That's, uh, that's correct, just uh, a bit of just right in milk and uh, a big portion of uh, locally grown fruit salad. Can't beat it. Sounds good to me. Now, the sun is kind of coming in and out and the, and the little breeze is picking up, but I have to ask, how do you harvest in a top-end summer um, these prickly trees? How, how do you cope with it? Uh, you do get used to it. You just got to make sure you have a break every 30 40 minutes and drink plenty of water because it's easy to dehydrate obviously uh, for anyone starting out or wanting to uh, get a summer job picking dragon fruit i would uh, advise them to wear long sleeves at least for the first month or so after a while your skin does get used to it and even though you might get scratches and all that um, yeah, i can see them on your arm there <laughs> they don't bleed as much anymore and, and they they uh it's, it's no big deal anymore. It's the nature of the job. <laughs> it's the nature of the job, yeah. Well, when you're working with, um, with cacti, you've got to expect a few, uh, few pricks in your hand, I suppose. Yeah, as you've just kind of flicked one off your <laughs> finger there. Well, it's been great to catch up, Remy. Thanks for your time on, on the country hour today. No problems, Michelle. Thanks for coming around. That is Remy DeVos. He's a dragon fruit and a mango producer on the outskirts of Darwin. Dragon fruit season. It is well and truly underway in the Darwin rural area. It is 21 minutes past one. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to The Country Hour. Coming up soon, uh, you're going to hear from a business that has been for the last 30 years selling wallaby meat into restaurants and retailers uh, but as it does that it usually throws tens of thousands of wallaby skins into landfill each year just chucks them away uh, but it's now come up with a way 
to use that waste um, into something good. I'll tell you more after the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones there with It's Only Rock and Roll. It is 25 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. Well, a business that has been supplying wallaby meat to restaurants and retailers for the last 30 years has found a new way to reduce the waste from its business. Uh, This mob in Tasmania, it's been making Ugg boots from the tens of thousands of wallaby skins that it would otherwise go to landfill each year. John Kelly from Lena Gay Meats says these new Ugg boots are a big innovation for his company, which was a bit of a pioneer in the wallaby meat industry. We, we, we were the first people to process wallaby for the restaurant and retail trade. We were the first people to call it wallaby. Now, 30-odd years later, we're, we're processing nearly 50,000 wallaby a year and, and all up we're worth about 25 or 30 jobs. When you started, what were the attitudes like to eating wallaby and how have you seen that changed over the years? Back then, a, a fairly common reaction, I guess, was people saying, oh, yuck, you can't eat that. <laughs> but now when we do food fairs, we, we get 16-year-old girls making a beeline out of the crowd to come and get a fix of wallaby. So it's tra- changed dramatically and wallaby is now a highly regarded part of the Tasmanian food basket. Because it's a lot more environmentally friendly, as I understand? Yeah, that's that's the appeal of our product for a lot of people. I mean, wallabies, for example, don't emit methane. I can't think of much that makes greater environmental wisdom than us producing our food from the animals which belong in this land and to which, which are adapted to this land. And you've got a new product on the menu as well. What was that? It's a little bit different to eating wallaby, though. Yeah, so we've expanded out into the fashion trade this year. We've the hardest thing for us to sell have been our wallaby skins, and and to date we've been throwing most of them, discarding most of them in landfill, and that really has been breaking our heart. And and so we launched on our on the market our wallaby for Ugg boots, which in a moment of marketing brilliance we call. Wugs. <laughs> and how do they how do they differ from sheep skin Ugg boots, which is the traditional one? Yeah. So they're essentially the same boots. It's just made out of wallaby fur and leather rather than sheep. But they are very, very different product. We've had work done by RMIT, which has shown us several things. Um, you know, firstly, wallaby leather is incredibly strong compared to sheep's leather, so we expect these boots to wear much better than sheep leather. It's also more waterproof and and, sh- and shrink resistant than sheep leather. But a really great thing about them is they've de- they've demonstrated that the the open nature of the wallaby fur allows heat to dissipate through the boot rather than trapping it all at the bottom of the boot. So what people have been... This backs up what our customers have been telling us for a long time, that in, in Wugs, you don't sweat like you do in Uggs. So you don't get one up with that stinky, smelly, sweaty Ugg, Ugg boot. It's, it maintains a, a, a very pleasant feel. And how much wastage do you think you'll be minimising with the introduction of this new product? 
Well, we, we hope that eventually we'll, all of our skins will go into this, um, which will save us having to throw the things out and make us a lot happier and, 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 and the people at the tip a lot happier, I guess, as well. Maybe in a few years' time I'll be a fashion producer rather than a meat producer. I'm not quite sure how I'll cope with that, but we'll see. That is John Kelly at Lena Game Meat speaking there with Madeleine Rohan. And that is it for the Country Hour for today. Thanks a lot for joining me for the program. Always remember, if you miss any part of the show, it will be available on the podcast later in the afternoon. And Michelle Stanley will be back on your radio tomorrow. Have a good afternoon.